Well, you're tuned in to another episode of the Zealous Podcast. I'm your host, Rocky Snyder. This week, Kyle Moore, who's the Associate Head Athletic Trainer of the Las Vegas Golden Knights NHL hockey team. These guys are just kicking butt all season long here. We're going to find out well, behind the scenes how he keeps his players on the ice out of pain and at their top level performance. Be sure to click subscribe, follow us on Instagram at Rocky underscore Snyder, and away we go. You know, Kyle, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. This is this is going to be a really fun conversation, I can already tell, because a lot of the information you've been seeking for your own professional benefits kind of parallels some of the things that I've been uh, working on or focusing on and learning. And so I think we can speak a lot of the same language. First of all, Golden Knights, you guys are at the top of your division. Fantastic job with that. And a big part of it is keeping your players healthy. So uh, congratulations for where you are already in the season as we come to the end of the year. How, what, what do you attribute, first of all, to the, to the, not only the skill level, obviously the players getting you up to the rankings in number one, but what do you, what do you contribute yourself to help with a successful recipe? Yeah, um, thank you, first of all, for having me. I'm excited for this opportunity. And uh, to answer that question, yeah, we've had a lot of success to the, for the start of the season. Um, we've been able to stay able to stay pretty healthy so far to start out the year. And collectively, as a, as a group with our uh, performance staff, we, we really do uh, – we know that we don't have the, obviously, pure influence of a win or a loss, but we try to contribute as much as we can to player availability – players playing to their uh, peak performance levels to hopefully set them up for a chance to win and to perform well. So how much that is, I don't know, but uh, we, we definitely try to do uh, the best we can to, to make sure the player is able to perform the best they can. And so just if you could kind of elaborate on like your therapy philosophy and, and what kind of professional development classes have influenced you the most? Why don't we start from there? And Because I'm, I'm curious to know how many rabbit holes you've been traveling down and, and what you've accumulated over the years. Yeah, so I've, I actually did this. Um, I kind of just, I didn't really know what my therapy mindset or therapy philosophy was. I always had ideas. And um, an exercise I did with myself was I kind of put together on a whiteboard and just kind of just started brainstorming and putting it down on paper. And it was a great exercise to see what it, what it was. And I think the foundations of it, the foundation for me is especially on a soft tissue based injury or a, uh, chronic, uh, injury, like a tendinopathy or something like that. Um, really trying to find what that underlying cause is. Um, I'm a big, uh, big supporter of the f idea that something is the underlying cause to these issues. It's what I've seen clinically during my career. It's what's made sense for me. It's where I've seen success with it and deeping, digging deeper to try to find that, that layer and that, that cause has really been, um, been the goal of really any clinical um, case that I would have in that realm. And also taking that trying to be as objective as possible in um, not only taking the subjective feedback from the, from the athlete, but taking as much objective information as you can, uh, whether it be range of motion, strength assessments, uh, posture assessments, movement assessments, whatever, the, whatever anyone would want to use, and then give the intervention that you feel is going to be beneficial, and then reassess that again afterward to see if you've actually made a change. Um, I, I think that's been a big foundation for, for me as well to see if I'm getting uh, the change that I want. And then also and then implementing some sort of corrective exercise uh, along with that. I know that's a very loosely used term these days, but uh, I still like it in the sense that the, you want to you wanna try to make something stick, right? Like if I'm making a, a lot of passive changes on, a, on an athlete, I want that to stick with active implementation. So, and then that'll go into their typical dynamic warm-up, and then they'll go out and play their sport. And the way I've always looked at any sport I've worked with is that the body's going to adapt to that sport that's being played. The body wasn't meant to be skating on the ice, in my opinion. So there's going to be lots of adaptations that happen. And then after that, when they're performing their sport, we try to get them to recover and 
come back down to their their normal um, normal postures and things of that nature and continue to reassess over time, reassess over time on how we can influence and how we can treat to avoid these soft tissue and chronic tendinopathies and things that we hope that we can actually have an influence on. Are we ever truly going to be able to prevent everything? I would be on the side of saying no, but I think we can influence things a lot and set the body up for success. So that's the, that's kind of been my kind of mindset that I've put down um, throughout the years that I've really tried to build my, uh, build my fit, my uh, clinical mindset around. Nice. Nice. Cause that goes uh, away to some degree against the conventional symptom-based approach when it comes to non-contact injuries and just treating the symptom site without necessarily considering the, the underlying cause, as you say. So I'm curious with that, do you try to extract as much of a history of timeline of your players from, from even from birth? Like what was their birth? I, I don't know how to get too extreme, but did they have a, a natural or normal birth? Were there episodes there? Were there childhood injuries, fractures, surgeries? Was there extreme dental work? Do you, do you go that extreme or do you just kind of get a general understanding of what their experience has been, might, which might lead up to the underlying cause? How deep do you go? You try to be as thorough as possible. It's, uh, it's an exercise we do with every athlete that comes in is we basically uh, just gather as much of a clinical um, injury history as possible. And that is um, anything from a concussion to your basic orthopedic injury um, surgeries as a, if they go back to the childhood years, things of that nature to just get a sense of what adaptations we can maybe predict a little bit when we have a little bit of something in our mind, when we do a bit of an assessment to see what's going on. We, we really try to take the previous medical history as a, as a starter and to be, to be as thorough as possible for us to hopefully, um, look at, look at things that, like they may not have any complaints now, but how does that, how does that hip labral uh, surgery look now compared that you had to five years ago? How's your range of motion? Like things just to keep in mind, that's just one small example, but something to have in the back of our mind when we're doing a, when we're doing an initial uh, assessment of the, of the athlete. So not to throw physical therapists under the bus, it's not what I'm intending, but you got a lot of players who have had injuries that have gone through some type of rehabilitative process, typically with a physical therapist, but there comes a time where they stop that. And in that time that they stop may come before they are fully, truly rehabilitated. Do you find that often? Or do you find that, and I'm not talking about your team's staff, but just in general, the athletes that come across your your table and in your treatment rooms and so on. Do you find that they are fully rehabilitated after injuries or is there still kind of a shadow there? I think there's, there's definitely every case is individual in that, in that matter. But I think, I think even if um, there, there certainly are some limitations sometimes, but I've seen it with cases that I've taken care of in the sense that the more they skate and the more they get further out, they're, they're going to have some, adaptation based on that previous history or previous injury. So I think, does it happen? Yes. Um, and that's where we try to be as thorough as we can to identify these, uh, these adaptations to prevent them from turning into secondary injuries. Um, I definitely do think that um, in the professional sports world, I think we, we bridge that gap from like clearance to play, but also clearance to maximal performance. Um, I shouldn't say, I shouldn't say clearance there. What I mean by that is we, we, we try to be, again, be as objective as we possibly can and try to make sure that not only are you safe to play from the injury clinically, but are you at your peak performance and your baseline levels for you? It'll be a positive contributor when you get back on the, on the ice. So I think that that's the gap where um, I think we can really be uh, we can really bridge that gap between being medically cleared to play, but also cleared to, for full performance. And hopefully that comes at the same time.
Well, let's talk about that gap for a moment, if you don't mind, because as I see it, like you mentioned, corrective exercise and, and people can give it whatever terminology, but it, for the most part, we understand what you're saying are, are there movements to clean up improper patterns, compensatory actions, uh, just to overcome some kind of inhibition, if you'll call it, or, or over facilitation, whatever the case may be. But often we're, we see corrective exercises set up prior to a a conditioning program, strength conditioning, and then they go into their routine in the hopes that the corrective exercises are setting them up to better execute the movements that are in their program. Is But therein kind of lies a gap, don't you think? Like, sh shouldn't there be some type of uh, like progression, regression of an interwovenness of the corrective strategies that blend into strength conditioning, taking into consideration their, their previous injuries and so on. Do you know what I'm trying to get to? It's almost like here, we'll throw corrective exercises up into the program and we're just going to wish for the best. You know, that's kind of a sense that I get, not from you, I just mean in general, in our industry, it's like, okay, you've, you've given them some correctives and now go ahead and do your routine. I think there needs to be a little bit more interwoven fabric and, and closing that gap more. Am I off with that or, or what do you no, think? No, I think, I think you're right on and I'll, I'll go back and answer a piece of your, uh, what your first question in the sense that the one thing that I've deep dived into from a um, professional development side is a Posture Restoration Institute. And I've really utilized PRI to be that gap between my, I'm a big manual therapy fan. Um, I started my manual therapy with ART um, and I've expanded that in the dry needling, um, neurokinetic therapy, and just trying to get as much uh, experience as I really do think that we can influence the, the soft tissue, the body with our hands. Um, uh, I think we can influence that really well, but I only think that matters if you then take that passive intervention and couple it with an active intervention. And, and that active intervention for me, that's been really, um, has been really good has been PRI. It's really helped me get things to stick um, for the passive interventions that I'm doing with manual therapy. And the piece that uh, to talk about that specific gap that you're talking about, because I do agree there is a gap there. And clinically I use um, PRI exercises or um, specific kind of modifications to um, exercises they've done to make it a little bit more specific to the athlete. But I think the most important piece to that is communication with um, our strength and conditioning staff. I think, I think the, the having a high level of communication, because like we, we view, um, and myself, I view an athletic trainer and a strength and conditioning coach as, uh, as a, a member of a performance staff right? Like we're in this, we're in the same business. We're in this, we're trying to get an athlete to perform the best that they can. And when you have that high level of communication, you can, you can balance exercises off of each other. You can ask significant questions. And that in itself, I think is going to close that gap between, um, between an athlete who is getting ready for activity um, to go out and perform at their best. I think, I think that's going to really be the, the method to close, to close that gap that you spoke about. Well, you also are not only what you just mentioned with NKT, PRI, TPI, all these letters that you've been pursuing knowledge from, but CSCS, Certified Strength Conditioning Specialist as well. So you, you've got the, both the, your foot on both sides of, I won't even say the fence, but on, on both sides of the medical and performance to some degree. How do you utilize that knowledge with CSCS? with the ATC, how have you blended those together to perhaps better communicate with the performance staff of the strength coaches and so on? Do you do, you do that? And, and if so, what, what have you found? What I've found with that is it's, it's given me a really solid foundation for conversation because I, I do not practice as a strength conditioning coach. Um, like you mentioned, I do have my CSCS, but that was... Um, something that as I've developed through my career, I've definitely 100% been an athletic trainer way more than I've been a strength conditioning coach. I've never practiced solely as a strength conditioning coach. Um, and I leave that to our strength conditioning coaches that are way better than me at, at programming and way better at me at player development and all the, all the things that are necessary for a strength coach to be great. 
I just, I think it has helped me in the past with having um, some foundational knowledge to have, con to have a constructive conversation on what we feel we, we need, a, what a player needs, um, mainly in a post-injury conversation, because that's the world that I live in. Um, it's given me, um, like, I think, I think the, a solid uh, framework to work off of, but by no means have I gotten to the point where I've been in a, an elite strength conditioning coach by any means. It's not, um, it's not what I focus my time on. No, I, I totally get you. But what I'm curious, though, is that the, I guess the question is when to load. So you're dealing with the players that are, uh, are having some issues, whether it's uh, moving patterns, whether it's just tendinopathy, whatever the case may be. And then they need to go eventually get back into the weight room. What kind of assessments, because I know you're, you're one of those guys that, you know, in order to know if this is valid, we need to assess, do that movement, reassess to see, are they ready for this? So I guess the question is, what kind of assessment tools do you use in order to understand when you need to load your players and when they're not ready for it? Yeah, quite simply with the first thing that comes to mind with that is, are they, um, are they pain-free? Um, are they pain three, free through everything I'm about to talk about? For one, do they, do they have full range of motion actively and passively? And can they produce full isometric force without pain? Um, and I focus only on the isometric because concentric and, and eccentric is going to come naturally with a loading progression and the rest of a, rest of a rehabilitation. But I want to know, can you fire that muscle um, to a baseline level if we have the measurement? Um, if we don't have the measurement, then we're, we're going off of a, um, we're going off of probably a bilateral assessment to see if, uh, if both are equal, but if they can, if they can isometrically produce force without pain, that's telling me muscle fibers have gotten to a point where they're, they've healed enough where pain is not being created. Can I put that tissue all the way on stretch without pain? That's telling me the, the fibers are ready to be, to be loaded. Um, that, that, that's where, that's the big things we look for. Um, and then also tenderness palpation too. If there's, if there's no, if there's no pain to, uh, palpation and full range and full isometric, uh, capabilities, that's where we typically have the, um, the loading begin, which again, is still a very, um, very close, uh, process between the athletic trainers and strength conditioning coaches. I mean, it's, it's a nonstop flow of, of back and forth. Um, one of the things that I really like to do is when I'm able to, is to, we have a high-low table in, uh, in the gym and I like to treat up there when I can, just so that I can, not because I'm trying to like watch over things that are happening, but just so I can observe, just so I can observe the, the, the programming styles, the coaching styles, how an athlete looks while they're moving, and just, I try to be as integrated as possible with that, now be there to provide a, to provide a uh, intervention um, if needed, even mid-session, just to see, just be able to get some extra hip extension or get some extra dorsiflexion or whatever the case may be, just so they can have a more high quality training session. Um, so those are things that I've tried to do to make it as integrated as, as possible, but it's, I think, I don't, I don't see a gap between athletic trainers and strength conditioning coaches personally. It's, well, a, it's not a in that environment, I bet. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah. It's, a com it's a combination effort the whole way through. And I think that you lose those, you lose those gaps and you're unsuccessful in those gaps when you're, when you're not working well together. And when it comes to the, let's just say the common injuries for the NHL players, adductor strains, um, maybe high hamstring pulls. Uh, there, there's certain protocols historically for such things. And I imagine, and I'm just guessing, but you'll have to kind of steer me in the right direction here, but maybe as a young up and coming athletic trainer, there is certain beliefs with these protocols. If this is occurring, then you need to do A, B, and C. But you yourself, over the course of time, have learned that each body is individual in its ability to move and create strategies or negotiations 
around the issues in the tissues and so on. So the approach to say an adductor strain may very well not be the protocol that has been laid out historically. We might need to take a different approach. Did you struggle with that? Or was that something that you just jumped into and said, of course, this makes complete sense. And I'm not gonna go with the, I won't say conventional, but maybe the, the previous understanding of what we should do. Yeah, I think of a couple layers with that. I think the first thing is you were, you were right with what you said that early in my career, um, early in my career, I definitely, as an athletic trainer, what your job is, is to work on the direction of a physician. That's your job. That's what athletic trainers do. And you get a post-surgery protocol or you get, um, you have protocols from the, the clinic you work through or things like that. And I think those serve as a good foundation, right? Like as long as they're clinically up to date um, with the current literature that's out there, I think those serve as a great foundation but I'm ultimately not a fan of protocols. Um, I think every rehab is, is, is its own individual thing. And that's also where it comes down to as an athletic trainer to having a very close and very uh, trust-based relationship with your team physician or your supervising physician to where they're comfortable with what you want to implement or what you want to tweak to the protocol and just have these conversations ahead of time because the athletic trainer knows the athlete um, at, a, at a very high level and knows their previous medical history like you mentioned to be able to meet these meet the benchmarks that we need to throughout a rehabilitation process which is necessary but I think the method of getting to each one can be very individualized to the clinician and also to the patient. And that's where the, the happy medium is for, in my opinion, to see the, the best potential, the best potential benefit. So anecdotally speaking, yeah, without, without mentioning names, you have a player that revealed to you in a way uh, how the symptom is not necessarily where the underlying problem may lie. Can you recall a time where that hit you like a brick wall, where this low back issue was actually coming from a five year bout with an inversion sprain that happened five years ago or with uh, something along that line. Was there something that made you go, oh my gosh, what the heck is this all about? I wanna learn more. Uh, trying to think back if I had like the one moment, I mean, it's definitely something that's evolved over time but I've, I've just always had the, the, the thought process of that if, if an injury occurs without contact, right? If an injury occurs without contact, then the site of the injury can't be the problem. Like the, the way the body, like that part gave way for some reason. And um, I think PRI opened my mind to that a little bit because that's a very kind of whole kinetic chain, whole system focused techniques. So I'd, I would definitely say that's opened, uh, that opened my mind to it when I took my first PRI course early on in my career. Um, and it's, I, it just, it just makes so much sense in my mind that that's how these things, these things work. Um, like there's numerous times where I have um, athletes come in and they're complaining of tension through their adductors and I don't even treat their adductors. And that tension goes away and it makes, it makes sense in the sense that um, we, can, we can influence these tissues without addressing the tissue itself. Do I treat the affected area as well? Of course, there's, there's still times where you need to work through a trigger point through a muscle or work on getting some uh, increased uh, range of motion through, through a joint, through that soft tissue. But it's uh, in the, especially tendinopathy too, I mean, tendinopathy, the tendon's screaming at you because something else isn't working right. And uh, it's always, it's, it's the more time I've gone through in my career, the more I've seen that it makes sense and it's, I've had positive results. So it's, uh, it's something that, again, is very closely related to the training side of it. And um, there needs to be adaptations to training programs made after the fact for those things that hopefully never don't come back again. So that's, that again, goes back to the, the connection between strength and conditioning and athletic training that I view is, uh, is necessary for the athlete to have the best experience through um, 
throughout a, a season or even through an injury rehabilitation process. And you've been uh, associate head athletic trainer with the Knights for how many seasons now? This is the sixth season. Sixth season. And have you had the same strength coaches on the team too? Yeah. So I've had the same strength coach um, with me my last two years in the minors as well. So um, our, uh, uh, our one strength initiating coach, his name's Doug Davidson. He and I have been together for eight seasons now. So he was, we both came over to Vegas at the same time. And it, that, that in itself has been amazing. Um, he's, he's a brilliant, he's a brilliant guy and, um, we work very well together. Um, gotten to know each other very well. And I think it's, it's really, it's really brought the whole performance picture, uh, together for us to have seamless transitions from, um, the athletic training side and the strength conditioning side. And why hockey, Kyle? Why, what got you into the NHL and before that, the minors? Yeah, so it's an interesting story. So I grew up a hockey fan. Um, I always appreciated the athlete. I thought they were one of, the, one of the most exceptional athletes out there with what they have to endure over a season, playing multiple times a week. Um, Flyers or Penguins? I, I was Flyers growing up. All um, right. And uh, which was interesting because then I worked for the Penguins. But um, <laughs> So when I was in undergrad, um, I originally was looking at football um, just because I think I was a little bit bigger of a football fan than I was a hockey fan growing up. I didn't pl- I played a little floor hockey growing up, but not not anything competitive hockey wise, really. And um, so when I was going, when I first got into athletic training, and realized I wanted to do athletic training. I did. I was just trying to get as many um internships or experiences as I could possibly get and my hometown the I'm not from Reading but just outside of Reading Reading has a an East Coast Hockey League team called the Reading Royals they still have one today and I reached out to the athletic trainer um and he was happy to have me come in over Christmas uh Christmas break and I got a chance to observe him and I got exposed to the hockey world like I got exposed to the hockey culture and the the level of the level of family atmosphere there is the respectfulness from the athletes and they just i mean i'm just a kid coming in off the off the street essentially just looking to get an observation experience and i got a i got an amazing cultural experience so once once i had that experience i'm like i want to work hockey like that like this is this is where i think i can work with a high level athlete but also work in a very family oriented atmosphere, cultural, very uh, positive culture atmosphere. And um, I tried to gear all my experiences in hockey after that. Hey, podcast listeners, I want to let you know, I will be on the East Coast this January to teach two courses of anatomy and motion. The first course is on Saturday, January 21st at the Perform Better Functional Training Institute in West Warwick, Rhode Island. It is a full day of understanding closed chain biomechanics of the lower body. Following that, I will be in the South Boston area of Hingham, Massachusetts to teach a two-day course all about upper body biomechanics as it relates to the gait cycle. So if you keep scratching your head about your clients or athletes recurring pain symptoms, it could be a matter of compensatory patterns. Once you get an understanding of how the body is supposed to move, you can compare it to how your athlete moves. Notice the difference, what's missing, and then have a better idea of what to do about it. To register for one or both courses, go online to my website, rockysnyder.com. Click on Courses and Workshops at the top of the page and hit the Register button. This information has truly been game-changing for me, and not just me, for many of the Zealous Podcast guests as well. So I hope to see you this January in Rhode Island as well as Massachusetts. So hockey is quite different, I mean, not just culturally, but in terms of movement, too. We've got a, a, a greater deal of frontal plane action, of course, when, when skating and, and forward-backward motion is greater than a lot of sports, too. But the primary, the primary difference is the, the footwear or the contact and, and the ground surface that these athletes have. How you know, from an athletic training standpoint, balancing on a blade, going over slick surfaces, 
and having to move the body, not necessarily in sprint mechanics, but altered states of sprint mechanics. How, how does that relate to, to your role? Is, you know, do you know what I'm trying to say? I do, I do. And it's something I think through a lot in that the biggest thing is the effect on dorsiflexion of the ankle. Because I, so? I, I, I think the ice, some players lace up their skates different than others, but it, it generally limits dorsiflexion. I mean, it allows for some, but I think it limits it. And that over time causes joint restrictions through the talus, um, posterior chain restrictions through the, the foot and the calf. And I think it just wreaks havoc on the rest of the chain. Um, I think it wreaks havoc on the pelvis, which therefore wreaks havoc on the hip. And that's why probably the primary soft tissue I treat on a daily basis is a glute med. Um, glute medius is always hypertonic. Um, then, then start talking about lumbar erectors and then you start talking about hip flexors and all the, all these things that get put in a bad position when the pelvis is, uh, compensating for a lack of dorsiflexion. So we really try to focus on that. Like it's, it's a measure we take. We try to keep track of it throughout a season. Um, does someone have a history of a high ankle sprain? High ankle sprains are the absolute worst. Like if I, I sometimes I get asked the question of what's the worst hockey injury and people are expecting all this gory stuff and this and that. And for me, it's a high ankle sprain. It, it, it wreaks havoc on the, on the biomechanical function of not only the ankle joint, but the knee and primarily the hip. Um, I've seen a lot of, I've seen a lot of um, anecdotal evidence of just, guys with histories of high ankles they have issues up up the chain on that hip and it's something that we try to really treat our way through because that scar tissue lays down and it stays there for ever but i mean we can try to at least influence it to be in a better state so that ankle can function better makes complete sense i mean a lack of dorsiflexion at the ankle is going to require more sagittal plane motion potentially further up the chain are we going to have a greater degree of knee flexion are we going to have a greater degree of anterior tilt to the pelvis or hip flexion uh, you're not going to be able to get true hip extension potentially mm -hmm. so therefore the glute max isn't going to be participating as much and with all that frontal plane abduction of skating down i could definitely see how you get hypertonic in that glute medius so with that known when it comes to transferring that information to your buddy, the strength coach, do you guys do a lot of loading into dorsiflex positions for the ankles? Can we just drive them more into it? Can we get them to access that even when, they, when they're in the, the training facility? Obviously, you're not going to get it as much if they're lacing up the boots really tight. But do you, do you try to offset that in the, on the dry land based training, so to speak? Yeah, we do. Um... So we really try to couple, and this is where that level of communication, I think, is high. Um, I try to work through the soft tissue and the joint restrictions of the, of the ankle the best that I can to gain dorsiflexion. And then we try to couple that with some lifting exercise, either even some basic mobility exercise that's driving that, that's really driving that, that shin over that foot to try to get as much of that positive shin angle as we can to drive those um changes home and we, we take uh i try to take a similar approach with um with the hip extension that you mentioned as well um I'll, I'll do a lot of soft tissue work to try to um try to gain as much hip extension as i can and then that's then a piece of their either prep activity or their or their um their lifts are geared towards maintaining the the ranges that we we got and it's not a, you'll see changes in, in a one-time intervention but it's going to be something that's focused on for the coming weeks to try to really get that to to be something that is something that sticks and so you know you and i have something in common where we're really quite we look down at the foot quite often uh, you know 28 bones 26 of them are meant for movement they got the two sesamoids that are just more like uh, pulley systems for a windless mechanism but uh, in essence you got 33 joints down there but they're all laced up tight and without proper dorsiflexion of the ankle, you're not going to have a lot of, of proper pronation mechanics of that foot. So uh, do, you, do you address like what's the plantar surface or the plantar tissue doing under the foot? Do you do a lot of like 
manipulation, mobilization, or even for that matter, dry needling of the lower extremities? What, what else do you do to, to affect that, to try to reduce the likelihood of that high ankle strain and so on? Yeah, I try to, I do definitely look at the plantar aspect of the foot. I haven't done much dry needling at the bottom of the foot just because I haven't had, I don't think I've had an athlete that has had a level of comfort with it, with it yet. Um, I will certainly do a lot of dry needling through tib anterior, try to decrease any hypertonicity through there. Um, that's been very, that's been really successful as well. Um, but the, the thing that I get the, I'd say the most bang for my buck with is the talus and being able to make sure that that talus and subtalar joint can, can, can it distract from the joint? Can it, can it move anterior posteriorly? I really try to, I see a lot of limitations with the talus sliding posteriorly to limiting that that dorsiflexion as well. So I'll, what I'll do is I'll just have someone, I'll passively take them into full dorsiflexion. I'll ask, okay, do you feel like I'm stopped, you're stopped because of a stretch in your calf or Achilles area? Or do you feel like the front of your ankle is jammed up? And more often than not, I hear the front, front of the ankle is jammed up. And it's because in my opinion, the talus can't slide posteriorly. So if the talus can't slide posteriorly, it's not going to be able to get out of the way for the foot to, for the ankle to dorsiflex. So that's how I've really influenced, I think, at the, the most, um, along with all the secondary soft tissue compensations, like certainly uh, plantar, plantar aspect, flexor, flexor halysis, like all your typical structures that you want to try to loosen up with that. Um, but yeah, I would say that the, the joint mobility of the talus has been my biggest bang for the buck to get to get some positive effects on dorsiflexion. So you take a band around the anterior portion of that talus and distract it back, anchor it back behind the heel and have them drive into dorsiflexion? Or do you just manually just block that talus from gliding forward and try to hold it as they dorsiflex? What's your approach to that? I'll do both. Um, I'll primarily do um, hands-on joint ropes first. And then um, I'll, I try to do it mainly with my hands just because I think I have the most control over it. And I'll have them go into half kneel and I'll have them take their essentially knee over their foot and I'll be really doing my best to hold that talus posteriorly. That's kind of as a bit more of a, uh, an active component to the, to the um, passive joint moves that I just, uh, that I just did. And it, I think I see success with it. Um, I get, you get feedback from athletes that say like, Hey, I feel like I could get a little bit lower on the ice without, without having to get in a bad position. Cause I mean, at this level, these, these athletes are very aware of what's going on with their bodies in a, in a, in a, like a, a practice environment, right? Like they're not going to take note of that during a game. Right. But in a, in a practice environment or like a skills session skate where they're focusing on certain things, they can feel these things. They know their bodies. Um, so it's, uh, it's something we definitely try to make a focus of just because of its, its effect on the rest of the, the rest of the chain, primarily so, the hip, I would say. Do you like puzzles? Do you like being a problem solver? Yeah, I think there's, I mean, I also just try to be as truly proactive as I can. And what I mean by that is like, I want to be the clinician going to the athlete saying, Hey, we've worked on this in the past let's take a quick look at this and see if anything's going on like that in my mind is proactive. I think even when an athlete comes in and say, Hey, my groin's a little tight. Can we work on it? Yeah. That's going to start a whole process. I'm going to assess everything and try to figure it out, which I love doing as well, but they still came to me. I didn't go to them. So I try to be as truly proactive as I can be to stay on top of any of these things. I, I take notes of what, um, what I see works for certain things for, for players, like some players end up being uh, a lot more quad dominant than others. So they have classic uh, rectus femoris, vastus lateralis tension issues. Um, other athletes, they, they go through it with their hips and it's classically a glute med and a lumbar erector. Um, sometimes some guys are more SI joint. And I, I try to track these things in, I'm talking from a non-injury world right now. Like I'm talking from truly a preventative state um, I try to track these things and I try to, when I have the time, try to build connectivity and build trust with the athletes to be able to say, Hey, we've worked on this in the past and we saw this. Can we take a look at this today and, and see if everything looks good? And sometimes it looks good and they're on their way, but other times it's, it's back the it's back, but it didn't create a problem yet. 
Whereas if in my, in my opinion, if it's let go and it continues to function that way, a problem will arise. Got it. Okay. So curious with your, your experience with PRI and the fact that you have players that are inherently asymmetrical, uh, partly according to PRI, but also the way they play. There's a certain hand that holds low on the stick compared to high. You know, you've got left-handed players and right-handed players. How does that play back and forth into each other? Do you know what I mean? Like with PRI, heart on the left, too low blung compared to three low blung. Uh, it sets us up with a rib cage shape, which sets us up posturally almost preset to be a certain way is is there are you noticing just within your own experience uh, like is there an overlay with that do you, do you play along with that or does it get your head scratching going hmm i wonder what that's all about yeah definitely what the way i think about that is with like i certainly agree with the way you just described pri right like pri has its defined patterns that are there and i think that that is great but those are those patterns are completely altered when you're dealing with an athlete of a sport, right? So I think skating puts such a, a odd demand on the body. I definitely see more right-sided issues or more left-sided issues with their, the way their shot is and different parts of the body. I definitely see that for sure. Um, but that's where I rely on assessment and reassessment. That's where it, from a PRI lens, I look at it from with an adductor drop test, right? Or a passive straight leg raise. Um, so like I, 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 tr tr I always try to assess, take all everything into account with what the athlete is and what position they play and what handed they are and all those factors, but still go back to my foundational assessments, right? So I'll still assess them with things that I think are valuable assessment wise, and then make my interventions appropriately and while all keeping in mind what that athlete has to do on a daily basis as well. Because the way I, I, I've always looked at it is that skating, like we can make all these corrections in the world, even over weeks, right? Over weeks of time and people are gaining this and gaining that and they're making this is sticking, this is sticking. They're still skating on a very regular basis, which is an unnatural motion for the body. So things are inherently going to come back right? They're not just walking around every day. So I think they're, because of the specialty of the specialty movements required for skating, it's inherently going to mess everything up for lack of better words. So yeah. And there isn't it's, it's anything a, that offsets yeah. it, right? There isn't any, like any movement that's, you can think of that would counteract it. That's what we try to do. That like right. we, we try to, we try to be the offset. So they have a higher tolerance for skating. Like, I think that eventually the tolerant, the, the tissue is going to catch up to the tolerance and that's where I think injuries occur. But if we can keep that gap further away, they can perform and play at their sport at a very high level with hopefully a less, less injury risk. Yeah, it makes sense. And there are those within the industry that say, okay, as soon as you start changing the way in which they move, you could diminish their athletic skill sets, their athletic ability, their accuracy. But I don't see you finding that. Like the no. players don't come back to you and say, you've just messed up my slap shot. And that's not what I'm trying to do, right? Like, like they got any professional athlete in any sport got to the where they are, where they are doing things a certain way. I'm never going to try to change someone's stride. I'm never going to try to change the way someone shoots. They need to do that the way they've done it their whole career because that they've made a career out of it. And our job is to hopefully just be able to influence those things to hopefully have a decreased injury risk. Okay. So let's talk about a little bit of the off season because I recall back when I was studying with TPI, they were looking at the world's leaders for the long drive championships and what they found in the off season, they were doing things that were uh, countering by some were frisbee throwers, some were hockey players, but they were left-handed rather than being a right-handed golfer. When when it comes to managing like player care in the off season, that not just like activity-wise, but like 
there's a lot of players that go back to their hometown or go on vacation and they've got their own coaches, their own therapists, their own body workers. They see, how do you, how do you communicate? How do you negotiate or manage that care in the off season? Yeah, I think it first comes down to trust with the athlete. I think if, if you've gained a, a great relationship and a great trust, love a great level of trust with the athlete, I think that's the foundation of this, of everything that we're about to talk about go very smoothly because I think most of these athletes, they have people that they trust away from the team. And I think that's great. And I think the, the best part about the off season is you have to focus on that communication. You have to focus on communication on things that we've seen throughout this past season uh, things that we've seen have been successful for this athlete. And if you, if you have those conversations and have an initial introduction, it usually goes very well. It ends up being a, a really great dialogue, similar to what we're having right now. It ends up being a great dialogue of uh, respecting what we've seen, respecting what they've done historically, getting them up to date on the players' injuries that year, um, and, and just being able to have a, a good conversation to be able to keep an eye on the athlete um, while they're in their off season. Um, it's actually gotten to the point where if it's more talking to more of a therapist and like a post-injury situation, obviously the level of communication there has to be even higher to make sure the rehabilitation itself is going on. We'll even actually maybe, um, mix in some site visits, um, just to not as a checkup to make sure everything's going right, but more of a side of, um, just seeing in person stuff that you can't see on a video, you can't see on a, in a, in a phone call or something like that. Um, it, it's also driven professional development. I've been exposed to a lot of things from other therapists that I'm just like, Hmm, I never really thought of it that way. And then I look into the, the, I ask about the techniques they've learned and courses they've done. And it's, it's driven my, it's driven my professional development. So ultimately just being open and wanting to communicate because ultimately the more you communicate and the more smooth that is, the better experience the athlete's going to have. And that's, that's the reason we're all together and working on it. So um, it's been a, it's been a good experience in working and with and getting exposed to um, these external therapists, strength conditioning coaches to just be able to get the best outcome we can and learn. And is your curiosity, your curious mind directing you in a certain place right now in terms of your own education, your own professional development? Is, is it uh, motor neurology? Is it fueling? Is it uh, sleep patterns? Where, where, do you, where are you looking currently? Currently, um, I'm still working through TPI. So I still, have, um, I still have a little bit of ways to go with that. So that's where my current um, focus is um, right now, I would say. And I'm still working on implementing um, NKT with how, um, with how fresh it is. Um, one thing that I have been wanting to do in, um, it just hasn't worked out schedule wise is, um, anatomy trains has had a bunch of, um, dissection, um, bunch of dissection courses just to kind of refresh my anatomy knowledge and just really make sure that I'm, I'm staying on point, on point with that. Cause, uh, I had a cadaver experience in graduate school and it's been a while since I had that experience. And uh, it's that that's really been um, uh, being able to know what's underneath your hands when you're working on someone is, uh, is huge. So I've been looking at those courses for a while, trying to find one that lines up with my off season um, the best that it can. But yeah, I'd say right now, my, most of my time is, is invested in um, TPI and NKT. Nice. Well, when it comes to the off season, you couldn't time to, in a better location and, and timing of the year to be in Vegas. You know, you, where you're in Vegas when it's kind of decent during the in season, it's it's not boiling necessarily. Well, October gets kind of hot, but all in all, in June, of course. But you know, you're off. Do you you don't stick around Vegas in the off season, do you? Do you go somewhere else? Mm, Head back Vegas, to Pennsylvania? Is, Vegas is our home base. Um, Vegas is our home base. Um, we'll go back. Or we'll go back to Pennsylvania for about two or three weeks, typically, in the off season. But uh, Vegas is my home base. We like it there. Um, it's it's hot. <laughs> I mean, it's hot in July and August. That's that's no it's no joke. That's for sure. Um, 
but what everyone everyone always told me when I moved there was it's a dry heat, whichever which is what everyone says, and it, it is true. I mean, I am soft with humidity now. If I'm somewhere where it's humid, I my body is adjusted for sure. And but what, uh, so that's kind of my next question, and probably my last question because we're running out of time here. But you go on like a ten day road series, and and you're gone. Do you notice in terms of player? health ability maybe even like occurrence of injury if there's a difference between the beginning of a road trip and the end partly because of different time zones sleep patterns interrupted or a long stretch of games that are kind of back to back have you i'm just curious if maybe not but do you notice anything like that compared it's to being at home for a while it, it, it's something we're we're trying to actually quantify and look at uh to see if we have any trends at different points at where you're seeing but ultimately, I mean, if at, at the end of a road trip, I mean, everyone's exhausted to a certain extent because um, we're, we're traveling, we're getting in late, we're, we're sleeping late, we're constantly trying to stay ahead of the sleep side of things with um, appropriate supplementation that can be done and uh, make sure we can make sure athletes are recovering the best they can. But um, I can't say I've noticed anything specifically. Um, to, to answer you, not to give you an answer to your question, but there are definitely, um, there's definitely adaptations to travel, um, staying in a seated position for five, six hours, um, definitely does have its adaptations and change to the body. And, uh, we definitely do end up taking that into account when we're treating, when we're landing, wherever we're going. So do you, do you, uh, curious, do you have like a, a landing program when you land in a city? And the guys head back to their hotel. Do you have a little little program that everybody follows just to open up their hips again, reduce hamstring, distal hamstring tension from their knees being flexed or whatever the case is? Is there anything like that? We don't have anything formal, but we offer up um, the ability for uh, guided workouts and guided mobility programs and, and treatment sessions. Uh, at the, at the, that's all available for the player to be able to consume, yeah. Right on. Well, Kyle, we're coming up against the clock and I, I, myself personally, I could keep on going and listening to your responses and replies for quite a long time, but maybe somewhere down the road after the season's over or, or whatever, we can kind of reconnect and uh, have another conversation. But I truly appreciate your time, your, your knowledge, experience, and what you've shared today so far. So thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thanks for the time. And that's a wrap for this week of Zealous. I'd like to thank Kyle Moore and the Las Vegas Golden Knights organization for making this episode a reality. If you want to know more about Kyle, simply check out the description below for the links. As it just so happens, I'll be in Kyle's area this coming summer. I'll be presenting at the NSCA National Conference with a number of amazing leaders in the field of strength conditioning. The conference will be held at Caesars Palace from July 12th to the 15th. I'll also be giving a pre-conference presentation sponsored by Perform Better. So be sure to go to NSCA.com for more information. Until next week, make it a good one.